Well, one of my, uh, one of my happy places is uh, anywhere that I can be on the water. I really love whether it's a creek, river, lake, ocean, I love to be on the water. And one of the things I really love to do is to take an inner tube and uh, to lay out on the water and take a nap. There's just something like floating in the water that just puts you right to sleep. It reminds me of the, the old water beds, which I don't know if they even make those anymore. Do you remember those were like a phase, a fad in the 90s? That was the coolest thing to have a water bed. And uh, it's just something about just kind of being lulled to sleep there on the water. But there's a big difference between laying out on an inner tube in a lake and laying in an inner tube in the ocean. Because in a lake, you lay out on that inner tube and you, you start taking your nap and you wake up and you're basically exactly where you were when you went to sleep. But in the ocean, it's very different. Uh, I'm, I'm from Houston originally, uh, by the way, we're very happy about, uh, today, Astros uh, World Series champions. Got my Astros socks on today. Um, but in Houston growing up, if you want to take a nice uh, weekend trip, you go down to the exquisite beaches of Galveston. And I remember one time uh, getting my tube and swimming out beyond the surf, laying out on that uh, tube and taking a nap. And when I woke up, I wasn't where I started. You see, when you're out on the ocean, you, you start at point A, but then you begin to drift and you get somewhere else. And drifting is scary. Drifting can be quite dangerous. I want you to consider this morning as we look at Colossians chapter 2, the danger of spiritual drift. Every single person in the room today can be susceptible and vulnerable to spiritual drift. That means where you start out at one place, but then slowly and subtly, but surely, you drift somewhere else. Maybe you'd be willing today to, to say today, Pastor, I, I, that's me. I have drifted from where I, I once was. I have drifted away from Christ. I'm not as close to Christ as I, as I used to be. When Paul writes the book of Colossians, he's writing a letter to a church in Colossae that is in danger of spiritual drift, of drifting away from Christ. And the way that that happens is through doctrinal deception. Paul is writing to a church that is being threatened by a heresy. Now, let me just give you a real quick definition of heresy. Heresy is false teaching. And usually false teaching has to do with diminishing the work or the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's what false heresy is. That's what heresy is. Uh, a false teaching it seeks to diminish the work of Jesus or diminish the person of Jesus. Often heresy will give Jesus a place but not the supreme place. And that's exactly what was happening in the church of Colossae. There were some false teachers who had come into the church and were spreading this idea that if you want to have a full relationship with God, you need more than just Jesus. Their philosophy, their ideology was what you might consider Jesus plus. Jesus is great. It's all good and fine that you follow Jesus but you need Jesus plus something else. And so they had this false teaching and they said, if you do 
this, this, and this, you will have a fuller relationship with God. It's fine to follow Jesus, but don't you want something more? If you want something more, this is what you have to do. And so they had this false teaching. And I'm going to give you a big word that describes this false teaching. It's the word syncretism, syncretism. You've heard the word uh, of something being synchronous. Syncretism is a heresy that is, it's more than just one thing. It's a mixture of things. Um, I'm a father of three daughters and one son. And as a, as a girl dad, I've learned to do some things that I didn't ever think I would be able to do, like braid hair. When you braid your daughter's hair, you're taking multiple strands of hair and you braid it together, you put it in a scrunchie or whatever, and now this thing that was multiple things is now one thing, right? It's just a mix of things. And that was the heresy at the church at Colossae. It was a mixture of multiple ideologies that uh, was put into this evil soup, if you will, of false teaching. So here were some of the things that the false teachers were espousing. They were saying that if you really want to have a full relationship with God, you need to be involved in what is called asceticism. Asceticism is essentially self-denial. And by the way, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about this heresy because this is not just something for 2,000 years ago. This is something that actually faces us here and now. We still see these kinds of false teachings. Asceticism is the idea that if you really want to know God, then you must deny yourself, that you must never experience any pleasure in life. This is what I call no-fun Christians. You ever heard of no-fun Christians? I remember uh, growing up one, one Sunday after church, Church service is over. I got, grab my buddies. We grab a football. We go to the back of the church house in a big field, and we started throwing the football around. I remember my Sunday school teacher walked out, and he said, hey, it's the Sabbath. You can't play football on the Sabbath. He's what I call a no-fun Christian. Right? It's the idea of like self-denial, that if you just deny yourself enough that you'll have you know, a greater revelation of who God is. That was one aspect of this false teaching. Another aspect of the false teaching was legalism, um, rule keeping. So you have to, uh, you'll see this in Colossians chapter 2, you have to keep the rules, you have to pay attention to the Jewish law, you have to observe the holy days, you have to pay attention to the law, and that can seep into our churches too, can't, can't it? That if, if you really want to have a relationship with God, you better make sure you're keeping the rules if you don't keep the rules, God's not going to be pleased with you. And so we don't drink, we don't chew, we don't go with the girls who do. <laughs> right? We, we keep the law, we pay attention to the rules, we try to be nice people, we vote Republican, you know, whatever. And God is going to be p- more pleased with us through our legalistic observations, right? That was part of the heresy. <clears throat> Deny yourself. Keep, keep all the rules. Another aspect of the false teaching was mysticism, angel worship. You read about this in Colossians chapter 2. They, they worshiped angels. And by the way, that's not just something that happens 2,000 years ago. It happens today. There's an, an unusual kind of weird fascination with angels in our culture. In fact, there's kind of a, some folk theology, if you will, about angels. It's very, very obscure. I remember doing a funeral one time in direct Texas, about 30 minutes outside of Paris, Texas, and I did a, a funeral for this individual, and um, a relative of the, the deceased came up to me afterwards and had a little figurine 
of an angel. It's like one of those little chubby baby angels that you pick up at Lifeway or wherever. And she said, hey, this was, you know, Bob's guardian angel. And now he's dead. He doesn't need it. I'm giving it to you. Thank you. There's some weird stuff out there, folks. Kind of mystical, right? Um, There were aspects of paganism. In fact, some scholars even say that the the false teachers were even uh, propagating aspects of the occult that was facing the, the early church there in Colossae. And we certainly have that in our culture today as well, don't we? We have things like Ouija boards and, and other things, right? I, I, I am a 90s baby, grew up, I'm a millennial, so I remember the rabbit's foot. Any of you 90s babies remember the rabbit's foot? It's like a good luck charm. And we have these sort of pagan sort of ideas that can seep into our worldview as well. All of this was threatening the church at Colossae. You need Jesus plus X, Y, or Z. And Colossians 2 really shows us some of the colossal mistakes that were facing the church at Colossae that could cause ruin to their faith. So Paul writes to them to address this head on. And this is what he says in verse 4, chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I'm saying this so that no one will, let's say this word together, deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. Paul's saying, here's the false teaching that seeks to diminish, to deceive, to demote or to dethrone Christ. And I'm writing so that you won't be deceived by it, that you won't be tricked by it. I love sleight of hand tricks, magic tricks. I've become like a six-year-old if somebody breaks out a card trick. But here's what happens in a, a sleight of hand trick. You think something's happening here, but something's really happening here. There's a deception to it, and Paul is saying there is some theological sleight of hand that's happening, and I'm writing so that you won't be deceived by it. I love the way that the King James Version translates verse 4. Listen to this. I'm saying this so that no one would beguile you with enticing words. Boy, we don't talk like that anymore, do we? That's a pretty good statement. I'm writing so that no one will beguile you with enticing words. Paul is using the language here of seduction. He said, I'm writing so that you, so no one will seduce you into having this false view of the gospel, this false view of Christ that seeks to give him a place but not supreme place. One commentator said that this phrase in verse 4 has a legal background. It would describe someone who takes evidence in a court case but manipulates the evidence in order to convince someone of their side's truthfulness. That's an interesting way to think about what false teaching is. It's a manipulation of the evidence. It's taking aspects of the truth, turning it slightly so that it's now a partial truth. But here's the deal. A partial truth is a whole lie. Amen? And false teachers will take things that sound true and they maybe have aspects of truth and they will manipulate it slightly in order to convince you. That's what it means to be beguiled with enticing words, to hear things that are almost true. And folks, almost truth is dangerous because it will lead to spiritual drift. Almost truth produces what John Wesley once called almost Christians. So Paul says, I'm writing so that no one will deceive you. Paul wants to see the Colossians stand strong 
in the face of doctrinal deception and spiritual drift. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, for I may be absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are. Notice that phrase, well-ordered you are, and the strength of your faith in Christ. That phrase, well-ordered, is a military word. It describes troops in battle formation, troops that are ordered like troops in rank. The picture that he's painting here is the church drawn up in battle array, having a solid wall of defense against this error. That's a great picture there. Paul says, I want you to be standing strong, have a solid front of defense against this error that seeks to demote Christ like a Spartan phalanx where you are standing firm against this. This is exactly what he says in chapter 1 and verse 23. You'll remember back in chapter 1, he says, I-, I want you to remain grounded, steadfast in the faith, not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul's saying, I, I want you when, you, when you hear these deceiving doctrines that cause you to drift from Christ, I want you to not be shifted away from the gospel that you know. I want you to not be shifted or moved away from Christ. I want you to stand firm. I want you to defend against drift. And folks, that's my prayer for our church as well, because the reality is there, is, there are pressures all around us that seek to demote and diminish and distract and dethrone Christ. And we need to stand strong against that. We need to defend against drift. So how do we do it? Well, thank you for asking. I want you to see in the text, Paul gives us in the preceding verses to verses 4 and 5, he shows us how to defend against deception and drift. And, and here's the first way that he describes it. We defend against, dr- against drift through the power of prayer and preaching. Through the power of prayer and preaching. Let's talk about preaching first. I want you to notice back up in chapter 1 and verse 28. Look what he says. He says, we proclaim him. That is, we preach Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone, let's say this together, mature in Christ. So notice the connection here for Paul between the preached word of God and the maturity, the spiritual maturity of the church. He's saying we are preaching Jesus, warning and teaching so that you may be mature in Christ. So the connection is, if you want to be mature in Christ, that is driven by the proclaimed Word of God. Amen? And here's the deal. When you are mature in Christ, you are less likely to spiritually drift. Does that make sense? The more mature you are in your walk with Christ, the less susceptible you will be to doctrinal deception and spiritual drift. Well, how do you grow in maturity? It's through the proclamation of the Word of God. And so preaching is a deterrent to deception and drift. If you want to stand strong, if you want to have a solid wall of defense against this theological error, then value the preach Word of God because it's through the proclamation of the Word that you will grow more spiritually mature. And as you grow more spiritually mature, you'll be less susceptible to the things that tend to diminish and demote Christ. And let me just say this. I want to commend you because in two months as your pastor, I have already been able to see that 
Moberly values the word. Every age group, all throughout our church, I have seen in two months a very real value for biblical truth, and I want to just commend you for that, because the more you value Scripture, the more you value biblical truth, the more you will stand strong against anything that seeks to demote or diminish Jesus. So how do we stand strong against it? Well, value preaching. Let me just say a word here to to you parents. Let your kids see you engage with the Word of God on a daily basis. They need to see you in Scripture. When you gather here on Sundays, let your kids see you with a Bible, okay? There's nothing wrong at all with e-readers and Bibles on your phone and stuff like that, but here's why I recommend getting a real paper Bible, okay? Because your kids don't know when you have your phone out during the sermon, your kids don't know if you're on Facebook or you're paying attention to the sermon, Go, go to Mardell or wherever, get a, get a paper Bible and let your kids see you with it open. I, I remember as a kid, my dad would take us to church. I was one of seven kids and I didn't really pay attention that much during the sermon. But let me just tell you an image that stands out in my mind, a memory that I have. And that is, you know, all seven kids like little ducklings on the pew. But at the end, there's my dad, worked in the oil field, a man I respect more than any other man on earth. And I remember my dad had one of those old King James Version Thompson chain reference Bibles. Can I get a witness? All right. And he had it in one of those big leather cases. I don't know if they sell those anymore, but he'd open up that leather case. He'd open up that big Bible. And I remember, here's the Bible. And then on the other side, he had a yellow legal pad. And he was taking notes and leaning forward during the sermon. Now, listen, I can't tell you a single sermon from when I was seven or eight years old that I heard. I was bored and tuned out. But I can tell you, I remember whatever that man up there was saying was so important that it caused a man I greatly respected to open the Bible, take notes, and pay attention. That made an impact on me. So let me encourage you, parents, let your kids see you engaging with Scripture, whether it's in a sermon or whether it's at home around the dinner table or it's near your connect group. One of the great things that you can do at the end of every Sunday is when you grab lunch, just ask your kids, hey, kids, what did you learn at church today? Ask them one thing. Hey, what's one thing you got from the sermon today? What's one thing you learned in Connect Group today? And then just have a conversation about it. Show them that you value Scripture. That will help them to become more spiritually mature. As we become more spiritually mature, it helps defend against drift. All right, not only preaching, but prayer. I told you through the power of prayer and preaching. Now look down at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you. Notice the word struggling there. I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. Paul uses an interesting word here. The word struggling is the word agon in Greek. It, it, we translate it in English, agony. It is a, a word that means I'm struggling or I'm fighting for you. Paul's saying I'm agonizing for you. It was a word that was used of athletic contests like races. And those of you who've ever run a marathon or a half marathon, you know that the only appropriate word to use is agony. Can I get a witness? People talk about that wall at 19 miles or 20 miles, and you just have to push through that wall, keep running. You're, you're agonizing, you're struggling, you're striving. That's the word that Paul uses right here. I am struggling on your behalf. You could translate it this way. Look at what a great fight I'm putting up for you. Now, commentators disagree about what he's describing here. That Some people say it's the, it's the labor or the agon of just writing this letter. Paul's in prison. 
and it's a struggle just to write this letter to the church at Colossae. But I think it's more likely a reference to his struggle on the church's behalf through prayer. I think what he's describing here is actually a spiritual agon, a spiritual fight, a spiritual struggle. If you look down at verse 5 of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 5, he says, I am absent in body, but present in what? In spirit. How can you struggle or fight on behalf of people when you aren't even physically present with them? I would suggest it's through prayer. I think what Paul is saying is, I am laboring for you. I am fighting for you. I am agonizing and struggling for you. How is he doing it? By his prayer life. Paul, is, in other words, is struggling on behalf of the church at Colossae, folks, on his knees. The spiritual struggle, the agon, the fight, the striving that we do for one another is on our knees. The arena in which we do battle for one another is the arena of prayer. And it actually teaches us how it is that we stand strong against doctrinal deception and spiritual drift. How do we stand together as a solid wall of defense? We do that by praying for one another, by agonizing for one another on our knees, by warring for each other in prayer. I I need you to know, listen, if you name the name of Christ, you have a target on your back from the evil one. Satan wakes up, and when he puts his pants on one leg at at a time and he gets going to work, he is hard at work all day long to destroy you. Mom, Dad, think about that. Before you get up in the morning, Satan has already been at work crafting, scheming, to destroy you and your marriage and your family and your walk with Christ because Satan hates you. That's just the reality. If you name the name of Christ, Satan hates you and he wants nothing more than to destroy you. He is at war against you. And so we need to wake up, in other words, on purpose. We need to wake up with intentionality that at the start of the day, I'm already recognizing that the devil's scheming to destroy me and my faith and my marriage and my family, and so I've got to go to war on my knees. I've got to go into the arena of battle, into the arena of prayer. I have to agonize and war in prayer for my marriage, for my kids, for my neighbors, for my fellow believers, for my church family. Let me just ask you, are you agonizing in prayer for each other? That's how we're going to make it to the finish line of our faith together is if we have, have a church family that prays for one another. Amen? If we're going to stand against doctrinal deception and spiritual drift, it's going to be because we agonize for each other in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit of God to protect our, our, our lives, our families, our walk with Him. Amen? So how do you protect against drift in your walk with Christ? Well, value the preached word and pray for faithfulness. Here's the second thing that the text teaches us. We guard against drift. We defend against spiritual drift through the power of Christian community. Through the power of Christian community. Look what he says in verse 2. Paul says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together. Or some of you have a translation that says knit together in love. So that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. Paul is saying, if you want to have a full understanding of Christ... 
It's going to happen as your heart is knit together in love with the hearts of other believers. He's describing here the power of Christian community. He's saying if you're going to really defend against these reasonable-sounding arguments, this theological error, part of how you defend against drift is by being a vital part of a Christian community, that you are knit together in your heart, in love with other believers, and together as a family of believers, you stand strong against the work of the enemy. Let me just tell you, an isolated believer is an easy target for the enemy. That's why an alone person in the church is an emergency. A solid defense against error, against deception, against drift is a loving community of believers. If you've ever seen those uh, National Geographic documentaries about uh, animals that hunt in Africa, see a cheetah or a lion or a tiger, and they will hunt these herds of animals. You notice that that predator always looks for the straggling animal that has drifted from the herd. You ever notice that? It's always the straggler. It's the one that's been pulled out on its own. That's the one that the predator attacks. Peter tells us that Satan is like a roaring, what, lion, prowling around, seeking whom he may devour, right? So Satan's a predator, and he is seeking prey, and he's seeking stragglers, isolated, out on their own. And if you are on your own in the Christian life, you become vulnerable to spiritual attack. I have seen it countless times. When someone pulls back from the family of faith, they get out on their own, and before long, they have drifted, 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 drifted. Lanny Davis told me the story of an old pastor who, uh, there was a family in his church that had withdrawn from fellowship, hadn't been to church in a long time, and so the older pastor went and visited them at their home, and uh, instead of talking to them about that, he, he didn't come with a lecture or anything like that. He, he entered the home, the, there was a fire in the fireplace, and the old pastor took a little fire poker and went over to that fire and pulled out a little ember from the fire. That ember that had been red and hot, as it was pulled away from the rest of the fire, over a few moments it began to turn black and get cold. And then that old pastor pushed that ember back towards the fire, and it became red and hot again. That was all he needed to say. The reality is, if you feel cold in your walk with the Lord, I would ask you, one of the questions I would ask you is, have you withdrawn from other believers? That will happen. If you withdraw, if you pull back from other believers, you can grow spiritually cold. Paul understood this. This is why he's saying, if you want to have a solid wall of defense, make sure your hearts are knit together in love with other believers. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us a threefold cord is not easily broken. If you look at the redwood forest, you see some of the tallest trees in the world. Redwood trees can grow to 300 feet. What's surprising about what redwood trees is that their roots only grow 6 to 12 feet down. But then they turn horizontally, and they can grow 100 feet horizontally. And here's what happens. The roots of those redwood trees connect with the roots of other trees, and they begin to intertwine, and they find strength. And that's what happens when our hearts are knit together in love with other believers. We find mutual strength in our walk with Christ. Here's the deal. Heresy 
and doctrinal error, spiritual drift, it is the temptation to wander off. Community is that loving circle of people beckoning you home. So a loving Christian community is a deterrent to drift. That's why we encourage you to be part of a connect group at Moberly. We don't want you just to be a face in the crowd, to come in, slip in, and it's easy to do that at a place like Moberly. Slip in and, and no one knows you and you don't know anybody else. Listen, you need to connect with other believers. You need to experience discipleship in the context of Christian community. You, I just can't tell you how many times it's been encouraging in my walk with Christ when somebody who knows me well can speak into my life, can encourage me spiritually, can protect me when, when I'm starting to drift. I'm so thankful for that. That's part of what we do together. We look out for our fellow believer, and here's the deal. We're running the race. We're going towards the finish line, and every now and then as you are running towards the finish line, you're going to have a brother or sister in Christ who stumbles and falls, and part of Christian community is coming alongside of that person and helping them up and maybe stumbling with them to the finish line, and our commitment to each other is that we're, listen, we're taking each other with us. Like, we're going to get there, Amen. <laughs> And it, even if you have to pull me kicking and screaming, I hope you'll pull me across the finish line if that's what it takes. Like, let's, let's help each other get there. That's what Christian community is all about. That's why Paul says, have your hearts knit together in love. It's how you will avoid being beguiled with enticing words. There's one final thing I want you to see in the text, and that's in, in verses 2 and 3. It's, it's, it's this, that, that we defend against drift through the power of a Christ-centered life. Through the power of a Christ-centered life, when you realize what you have in Christ, when, when you understand the treasure of knowing Jesus, when you see him for who he truly is and you savor Jesus above all else, then you will stand firmly against any attempt to diminish, demote, or dethrone him. And that's exactly what Paul says here in verses 2 and 3. Look what he says. He says, I want your hearts to be knit together in love so that you'll have a, a, a full, uh, all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. Verse 3, in Him are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says, if you're going to be well-ordered, stand in rank against the onslaught of attack, the only way you're going to be able to successfully defend against doctrinal deception and spiritual drift is if you realize that it is in Christ that all of God's riches dwells. It is only going to happen if you really recognize what it is that you have in Jesus. Notice that Paul uses the word treasure. In him is treasure. Paul, in chapter 1, verses, uh, 20, verse 27, Paul says, I want you to know the glorious wealth. The look at the language, the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says, knowing Jesus is a treasure. There's glorious wealth in knowing Christ, far exceeding anything that this world can offer, right? Do you know that the, the most expensive buried treasure that was ever discovered was valued at $500 million dollars? imagine that? You're digging a sandcastle in some remote beach and you hit 
like an old pirate box or whatever, and $500 million worth of treasure. That's amazing. Of course, that pales in comparison to a lottery right now. One point, what is it? One point, Chris, you would know, right? 1.5 billion, is that right? 1.6 billion. By the way, if you bought a ticket, don't forget to tithe. Amen? <laughs> Lots of treasure, but here's the deal. It pales in comparison. Anything that this world offers pales in comparison with the treasure that we have in Christ. Jesus said the kingdom is like a treasure buried in a field, and someone sees that field and sells everything he has to buy that field. Because he, he understands that everything he has is nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. Do you see Jesus that way? Do you see, do you see Jesus as big, as glorious, as exalted, as great as he is? Do you see him as a small, insignificant Christ where it's, it's, you know, it's Jesus plus, or maybe it's plus Jesus. You have your life and your priorities, and you just tack a little Jesus on at the end. Or do you see Jesus as he really is, the all-glorious one? Think about the language of Colossians chapter 1, the Lord of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, the one who reconciles those who are far from God and brings them close. You see what you have in Christ. He's a treasure, and is he your greatest treasure? Does he have a place in your life, or does he have supreme place in your life? If you're going to stand against doctrinal deception and spiritual drift, you've got to find Christ as your greatest treasure. I think it's interesting Paul uses the word hidden. This is a not-so-subtle counterpunch to the false teachers in Colossae who were saying, hey, you know, if you want fullness, come to us. We have this hidden mystery. Deny yourself, observe the law, worship angels, and you can experience the fullness that's hidden. Paul says, no, God's fullness is hidden in Christ, which is a mystery that's been revealed, and anyone can know Christ. The reality is you, you don't need to add anything to Jesus Christ. You just need to realize the fullness of what you have in Jesus Christ. Amen? Isn't that so much of what the Christian life is all about? Just recognizing what you already have when you have Jesus. Coming to a fuller awareness of his beauty. Coming to a greater awareness of how great he actually is. And the reality is the times when I am tempted to drift is when I see other things as more valuable than Jesus. When I'm tempted to be shifted away from Christ is when I see other things as more precious than him. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this. He said, we are, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, Lewis understood that our hearts are tempted to treasure lesser things, to say, this is what it's all about. I got that car I wanted or I got the bigger house, or I got the pay raise, or my, I've got my health. 
and therefore I've got the fullness, and we, we're just content with these little, lesser, smaller joys. And Lewis understood God offers us infinite joy, but it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And spiritual maturity is when you begin to see Jesus more clearly and savor Him more fully. When He becomes the center of your life, your greatest treasure, and folks, that's when you will not be deceived into diminishing Him, into drifting from Him, into demoting Him or dethroning Him. But you'll see Him for who He truly is, and you will have both feet firmly planted on the solid rock that is Christ. Amen? I invite you to bow your heads with me. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, we would love to talk with you about how you can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus. In a moment, we're going to sing a final song of worship. And as you leave this place, out in the lobby, there are decision prayer partners who are wearing badges so you can identify them. And they would love to sit down with you today and talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus the one who loved you so much that he died on the cross for your sins. God raised him from the dead and he offers forgiveness and new life. If you're here today and you know Jesus as Savior, it really is true that so much of the Christian life is simply coming to understand what you truly have when you have Jesus. And if you don't see and savor Jesus today, if you'd just be willing to admit, you know, there have been some other priorities in my life that have taken center stage, that maybe your simple prayer today would be, Jesus, help me see you for who you really are. Help me to see you and savor you. Lord, we are so thankful for who you are to us. We're thankful for the fullness of life that we can have when we know Christ. God, forgive us where we treasure and prioritize other things. Jesus, be the center in our lives. Jesus, be the center of your church. Help us to see the supreme place you should have. Lord, forgive us when we turn to lesser joys. When we're too easily pleased with the things of this world, help us to see and savor Jesus and treasure him above all else. It's only possible through your spirit, so help us remain dependent. Lord, help us to value the things that you've called us to value, the proclaimed word, prayer, Christian community. Help us to remain dependent and humble on the power of the spirit. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.